0: Welcome back to our study of 2 Kings. We are in 2 Kings chapter 16, and in this chapter we are going to learn about the reign of King Ahaz in Judah. Now, King Ahaz was not a good king, as we will see, he was a wicked king, uh, but there is much for us to learn from the retelling of his reign. So let's look together at chapter 16 of 2 Kings here's what it says, beginning in verse one, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So here's what we learned at the beginning about Ahaz. He's not a good king. He's a wicked king. He is not like David, his father, who was a godly man. David was not sinless, of course. David did some terrible things. But he turned back to the Lord, and he was um, he sought the Lord. He, he loved the Lord. Ahaz is not like David. Instead, it says that he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. So he did not do what God wanted him to do. Instead, he imitated the idolatry of Israel. Remember that in the kingdom of Israel, there had been an idolatry from the beginning. Since it had split off from Judah after the death of Solomon, Jeroboam had... Uh, two golden calves built for the people of Israel to worship so that they wouldn't go back to Jerusalem to worship which of course was in Judah and he wanted them to stay in Israel and not be drawn back to Judah through going to Jerusalem to worship so Israel has been tied to that idolatry more or less uh, from that time and now Ahaz who's a king in Judah is imitating that idolatry that's why it says in verse 3 that he walked in the way of the kings of israel it goes on to say that he even burned his son as an offering to a false god right so he not only committed idolatry but he sacrificed one of his sons in his idolatrous worship and it says there this might seem just like a unimportant historical note for those who might be interested, but it's actually very important, and I'll show you why. In verse 3, after it says that he burned his son as an offering, it says um, that he did this according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now, here's why that's significant. What the writer of 2 Kings is reminding us of is that what the king of Judah has just done is the kind of thing that the nations that lived in the promised land before Israel did. And if we go back to the book of Leviticus in chapter 18, God tells Israel about some of the things that these nations did. And he says that the reason those nations are being removed from the land, which Israel is going to inhabit, right? Israel's promised land. The reason those nations are being removed is because of those sins, right? So for example, in Leviticus 18, it says, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, which is a false God. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And then a little bit later, it says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So notice what happened. These nations that were in the promised land before Israel, they did wicked things like offer their children as... A sacrifice to an idol and as a result god punished the land they lived in and the land spit them out they were in other words they were removed from the land because of this kind of sin and now the king of judah is committing this kind of sin so what should we expect to happen the same kind of thing. We should expect Judah to be removed from the land because Judah's king is doing the same kind of thing that these nations did that caused them to be removed from the land. And that's exactly what's going to happen. The book of Second Kings is going to end with Judah being removed from the promised land and taken into exile by the nation of Babylon. Right here at the beginning of chapter 16, we see a very clear picture of why not only that's going to happen, that we, but that we should expect that to happen. All right. Also, notice in verse four it says that King A has worshipped on the high places and all kinds of places. Now, that would be bad enough if he was worshiping God in all those different places, because God had said that His people were supposed to worship in the one place that He had chosen. That was the temple uh, in Jerusalem, right? Uh, according to Deuteronomy chapter twelve, but Uh, he's probably not worshiping God in all these different places. If he was, that would still be bad because he still wouldn't be doing what God told him to do. But instead, he's probably worshiping all kinds of idols in all these different places, which, of course, is even worse. Next, it says, beginning in verse 5, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Romalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath from Syria and drove the men of Judah, or excuse me, for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Eloth. And the Edomites came to Eloth, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. So what happens here is that Syria and Israel besiege Jerusalem, and so the king of Jerusalem sends to Assyria for help and he sends a gift of money to Assyria, some from the the treasury of the house of the Lord and some from the king's treasury and he uses that money to buy himself an ally. He doesn't seek the Lord, he doesn't cry out to God we're not told of any prayer, any seeking of the Lord that he does but instead he uses this money to try to buy an ally and we saw somebody else do the same kind of thing back in chapter 12, verse 17 and 18. Jehoash did something similar, right? It doesn't look good, right? Uh, What happens next? Starting in verse 10, it says, When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. Now let's pause there for just a moment. But right, Ahaz sees an altar in Damascus and he wants one just like it. So he makes a model and sends it to Uriah the priest and Uriah the priest builds this altar just like uh, the king showed him how to build it. And the problem with this is that God has already given instructions to Israel about what their altar should be like. There's already an altar connected with the temple. And that goes all the way back to when God gave Moses the pattern for the tabernacle and all the things that went with it. And it was to be built according to what God showed Moses. But now the king wants an altar built on a different pattern. It's not God's pattern. And the priest, who's supposed to be Facilitating the true worship of God goes along with the king instead of standing with God and his word and compromises along with King Ahaz. Alright, here's what happens next. Alright, so the king offers his offerings there, and then verse 14, and the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. and King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the uh, burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt offering, and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering, and their drink offering. And throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering, and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this, as King Ahaz commanded. So now the king has made... His altar, built on the pattern of the one from Damascus, his primary altar—not just his, but the primary altar that the priest is supposed to use for virtually all the sacrifices. It sounds like the King just says, I'll, "I'll use that bronze altar, which is God's altar. I'll use that one to inquire of the Lord by, right, uh, or to inquire by. It doesn't even say of the Lord necessarily. To inquire by, um, but." Just about everything else, it sounds like, is going to be done on this false altar, this foreign altar that Ahaz is so enamored with, apparently. And again, Uriah the priest goes right along with it. Now, Uriah should have refused. He should have stood up to the king. He should have stood with the Lord and stood on the Lord's word. Because even when someone who is in a position of authority tells us to go against what God has commanded. The Bible is very clear about what we're supposed to do. When the apostles were told not to speak or teach or preach in the name of Jesus, they did it anyway. Why? Because they said, "You know, should we obey God or men?" The answer is obvious, right? We should obey God. Right? It's that's what we're supposed to do when. When God's commands and men's commands contradict, we're supposed to do what God says. Just like we see in the book of Daniel, if the king tells you to bow down and worship an idol, you don't do it, right? Uriah should not have gone along with the king's plan, right? And we should not go along, even when people with authority, even when people in leadership. Tell us to do something contrary to what God says. We should obey God rather than men. All right, finishing up here, verse 17. And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them. And he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. So in verse 17 and 18, we see more alterations made to the temple area. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on in verse 18. Um, That part I don't understand as well, but uh, verse 17 is pretty clear. There's another part of the the temple and the sacrificial system um, that the king modifies. God didn't tell him to do that, he just decided to do it. Uh, And again, one of the reasons why this is so significant, so important and so wrong that the king is doing this is because all the way back in Exodus 25, at the beginning of the instructions for the tabernacle, which of course was later replaced by the temple that Solomon built, God said to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is God's dwelling place. He says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. King Ahaz has essentially said, I don't care what God said. This is what I like. This is what I want. And when we decide we don't care what God says, What happens is it shows up in our actions. That's what happened with Ahaz. Ahaz evidently doesn't care what God says. Or maybe doesn't know what God says. Probably he knows. If he knows, he doesn't care. Right? And that shows up in his actions. It shows up in his idolatry. It shows up in his replacing God's altar with the altar he liked from Damascus. It shows up in him making alterations to the temple area. The same thing happens with us, right? If we decide we don't care what God says, that's going to show up in the way that we act. But the opposite is also true. When we do care what God says, that will also show up in our actions. When we trust God, when we want to honor God, when we uh, seek to glorify God, to please God, that's going to show up in the way that we live, the things that we do, the way that we act, the way that we worship. We want to be the kind of people that believe that God is good, that God is for us, and that God's word is trustworthy and beneficial, profitable, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. And if we believe that, then it should be reflected in the way that we live. It won't be perfectly, but it will show up. Let's aim and ask for God's help to be the kind of people who care what he says so that we do what he says. So that we bring glory and honor to him. And so that we experience the goodness and blessing that God wants us to have. Right? He, when he tells us what to do in his word, it's be, not because he's against us. It's because he loves us. Let's trust him. God bless.